Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and the world back in 2018 was different. We were quite good at moving people from place to place efficiently and easily. So a visit to a major city like Toronto for business or a quick break was no big deal. So when an ideologically motivated attacker killed 11 innocent people in downtown Toronto in broad daylight, it was a horrific shock. Myself, I felt like I'd just been walking on that street. Those poor people could have been my family. An ideologically motivated mass killing is considered to be terrorism. And the ideology associated with this event was that of incels. Perhaps one of the hardest tasks for a researcher is to put aside your own feelings, prejudices, and emotions with the goal of an objective understanding of a phenomena. The difficulty of this task is only amplified by charged topics like this one. This episode, we welcome Alyssa Trewinski from the University of Manchester, who has been studying the incel community for many years to help us with the difficult task of objectively discussing incels so that we might understand them a little better. Of course, we will also be joined later in the episode by Professor Nicola May to answer another silly question about cybercrime law, which, of course, is always worth sticking around for. So let's jump into our main interview here, just as I'd asked Alyssa about how it was she came to research this topic. Oh, gosh. So as a background for me, I've been doing research on misogynistic incels specifically, but the wider incel community as a whole for just coming up to seven years now. Funnily enough, in undergrad, I took a course called The Sociology of Trumpism, and it was right after Trump had won the election. And I remember we all sort of went to like, Hillary's got this, and we all went to bed very (laughs) positive and like, everything's chill. And then we woke up in the morning and we saw the results. And I think there were a lot of people, myself included, who were just sort of grappling with how this could happen and not really knowing the political and historical and social factors that predicated this rise of Trumpism and alt-right conservatism. So my undergrad university offered a course. I was really interested in it. And one of the modules in that course was looking at masculinities within the online sphere. It wasn't really termed the manosphere at that point. But it was looking at a whole bunch of interconnected spaces. So blogs, YouTube channels, like rudimentary podcasts, social media accounts on Twitter, some Facebook pages, and then stuff on Reddit, as well as some stuff on 4chan that was just devoted to discussing masculinity, maybe some politics, particularly Trumpism. And one of the guest lectures that we had for that module was looking at beta males and masculinity. And I was like, I never heard of this before. And it sort of piqued my interest. So I ended up doing a project on the red pill and r slash TRP, the subreddit at the time. And as I was looking at red pill content, I ended up coming across a screenshot of something from r slash incels, the defunct subreddit that was around in 2016, 2017. And I was like, what is this? This is very interesting. And I haven't seen this community before. And I vividly remember the post. I think it was one that garnered a lot of attention across Reddit. It was one where somebody talked about stalking women for fun at night. And the post itself in the comments were just filled with a lot of vitriol toward women. And I just 
I hadn't been exposed to that before. So I just sort of went down the rabbit hole from that one post and ended up stumbling upon the incel community from there. And then I ended up asking one of the course leaders if I could do my honors thesis on it. And since then, I have not strayed. And I've, I've just sort of been carving my own little niche within the incel community more broadly, but specifically the misogynistic members of that community for the past seven years. So what what is incel? What is the incel community? So the term incel, I know a lot of us are probably familiar with colloquial use of it coming to mean a very angry man who is very entitled to women and to sex and to relationships. But the term that I adopt and the term as it was created was meant to be a bit more inclusive. It basically means involuntary celibate. So incels is a portmanteau of involuntary celibate. And it's used to signify anybody who struggles to achieve romantic dating or sexual success despite trying. So the sphere and the term itself is really broad. It could encompass a lot of social factors. So whether that's social anxiety, not knowing how to approach people, and just feeling generally uncomfortable with initiating interactions. It could include some mental health aspects, some physical disability aspects. It could also include things like depression and anxiety as well. And it could also include physical appearance. So it could be somebody doesn't think they're attractive, somebody has a physical deformation that they feel impedes them from being romantic or sexually successful. So there's a lot within that base definition of inceldom that I think we've sort of strayed away with in the, in the general conversation. But the term itself was started or coined by a queer Canadian woman in the late 90s, I think 1998. And she had this original forum that was just open to anybody, regardless of sexual orientation or gender, where they could just talk about their struggles because she herself was experiencing it. And it was just meant to be a space and a term that worked to identify somebody who just could not achieve romantic or sexual success, regardless of what that looked like in terms of gender or sexual orientation. So the the aspect of this that is, I guess, crucial is the involuntary part that this isn't a lifestyle choice. This is something that's forced upon them. Yeah, not not necessarily forced, but it's something that exists despite them trying to change it. Originally, Alana's conceptualization of the term was a temporary life circumstance. So in the same way that, you know, when you're growing up and you may struggle with romantic or sexual fulfillment, it's not forever. And there is always going to be somebody out there or you're going to find fulfillment in other avenues. That was sort of, you know, the, the basic conceptualization of it. And it was the temporary thing. It was something that people didn't want to live in and have become a defining aspect of their identity. It was just something that they were experiencing. I think now, as we've sort of shifted the conversation toward a subset of people within the community, it has at times developed into a fixed identity characteristic where it is the defining factor for them. That is why they are failing. Whereas before it was sort of, you know, these are things that I can change or these are things that are happening to me right now that aren't forever and I'm going to work through them and I need advice to work through them to get past this life circumstance. What was the shift from a gender-neutral term that described a temporary phase of life 
to the colloquial use and the association with the masculine internet or the manosphere? There is a lot of writing on this. So I'm going to be paraphrasing Julia DeCook and Megan Kelly and also Tim Squirrel, who have done some fantastic groundwork in tracing the origins of the contemporary use of the term incel versus Alana's original conceptualization of the term. And it looks like it was a blend of different things. So in the late 90s, when Alana had coined the term, her forum was really heavily moderated. You know, they did get some misogynistic content, but it was quickly wiped. Whereas in the modern day iteration, we don't have that same level of moderation that we did. There are community spaces that are moderated by more extreme members of the community. There is also, I think, in the early 2000s, the shift toward Chan culture and toward more edgy humor. I know growing up, I saw a lot of stuff online that was very, very edgy. And we'd sort of look at now and be like, ooh, that that hits a bit weird. You know, around, around the South Park time, our sense of humor was a lot different than it is now. And the way that we spoke about things was a lot different. So Tim talks about this blending of Chan culture with the incel movement to then sort of create the bones of what we see in the contemporary incel community today. There is also the incel community sort of shifting away from the pickup artist community, which is something that tells men, you know, if you follow these rules, you will be romantic and sexually successful with women. Here's what you have to do. And men who identified as incels were like, this this advice doesn't work for me. Like you haven't considered all of these other factors. And they sort of coalesced around this anti-pickup artist culture as well. So there's a lot of different factors, the changing landscape of content on the internet, the platforms themselves, the shift away from other manosphere-associated communities, retaliation toward the pickup artist culture. It sort of all coalesced into this one subset of the community that can be conceptualized as often misogynistic. You mentioned a red pill. What's with that? What's what's the what's the pill? So for anyone who's not familiar, the red pill ideology or philosophy is something that underpins a lot of communities in the manosphere, and it comes from the Matrix. So in the film, Neo has that option to take the blue pill, which is basically, you know, you continue to live according to life's delusions and everything is chill and very fine. Whereas if he takes the red pill, it opens his eyes to the reality of the world. And the Manosphere and associated communities have sort of branched from that red pill ideology, wherein a lot of the communities, not all, but a lot of the misogynistic communities will use the red pill euphemism to describe waking up from the blue pilled reality of the world. They've taken the pill and they see the world for what it really is. And in a lot of those spaces, again, not all, but in some to a lot, this pill awakens them to the realities of feminism. It says, you know, women are terrible, women are bad, women are manipulative, and then we need to game the system to succeed in a world that disadvantages us. So it's like a conscious paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. So... If that's the blue pill and the red pill, what's the black pill? The black pill is sort of an offshoot of the red pill. It adopts some of the same features that we've seen in other manosphere communities where there is this awakening to the realities of women and the reality of the world. But the black pill takes a really nihilistic tone with it. I think something that really shaped 
the Black Belt philosophy is a sexual hierarchy around physical attractiveness. People who believe in the Black Belt will often say there's this hierarchy that women uphold and are responsible for creating that puts physically and stereotypically attractive men and women, often termed Chads and Stacey's, which you may have heard, at the top of the hierarchy. Then you've got, you know, you're slightly less attractive, but still really up there in terms of looks, Brad and Becky. And then below that, you've sort of got the normie tier, which is regular people who are average looking. And then at the very bottom of that hierarchy, you have incels themselves. And incels will often say that they are genetically inferior, that there is something about their looks that just makes them an incel and something that is not amenable to change. So this black pill philosophy really cements that low tier status for them, but it also allows them to justify the fact that women are responsible for maintaining this hierarchy. That's oh, all very interesting. And, and your research, what are you looking into in amongst this community? For my PhD research, I've been looking at narratives and how we use narratives to sort of shape our experiences, how we tell our stories, and also how the stories that we tell through narratives can position others in a good or bad light. So specifically with my PhD, I'm looking at how narratives can cause harm, but also how narratives can counter harm. So I've spent a lot of time focused on the misogynistic incel community and those associated spaces. But for my PhD, I'm expanding the community that I focused on by looking at a defunct sub, which was r slash incels without hate, which was originally supposed to be a really supportive space and then ended up going a bit towards the misogynistic viewpoints at the end. And the currently active r slash intel exit, which touts itself as a peer-to-peer support forum for people who are looking to leave the community. But it does encompass a wide variety of incels and people who are incel adjacent or who are exit curious. So those who may still be embroiled with the community in some way that they're not happy about, people who have left, who feel that the ideology might still be there or they're having trouble letting go of some elements. It's also really open to other aspects of the incel community that are beyond straight men, femcels, queer incels, trans incels. So there's a lot of variety within that community as well. So that's sort of where I've shifted and I'm looking at narratives within all those three spaces. Okay, so the term was originally general and now there's sort of a re-inclusion of people, mm-hmm. but with, with different terminology. You mentioned exit mm-hmm. curious. Given that this is something that they're not happy with, that the involuntary aspect of it, shouldn't, mm-hmm. shouldn't they all be exit, like more than curious? Uh, that would be the idea, right? That you wouldn't want to be in this situation, that everybody should be pro-exit. I think the way that I'm conceptualizing exit curious is people who want to leave the online forums themselves rather than leave in seldom. A lot of people think that incels want to be incel, and I don't agree that that's the case from what I've seen in my research. There are some people, of course, you're going to get some people who revel in the nihilism and, you know, the Chan culture within the forums. But overall, the involuntary aspect is something that they are not happy with. They didn't choose this life. They don't want to remain in that. They do want to end up in relationships, whether that's romantic or sexual or both. The way they go about it might not be ideal, but they don't want to be stuck in that place. 
so by that logic, everybody wants to leave at some point. Everybody wants to ascend or get a girlfriend or, you know, have sex. But the way that I'm conceptualizing it is there are people who are or have been embroiled with the forms for so long that they just don't really know how to stop visiting them. And those are the people that I'm looking at as exit curious. So technically, everybody is exit curious unless they have just decided to accept their fate and then they they just are stopping trying. But within my research, it's mostly people who are on the forums who have said, I don't like the forums anymore and I want to get out of what the forums are teaching me. How do I go about that? I guess it's a double-edged sword because if you started going to those places to seek support, at some point you form a social group mm -hmm. that's not helpful for you. I mean you're seeking support to get out of a tempor temporary situation, but now you have this social group that's encouraging mm -hmm. you to, to stay there. That's, mm -hmm. that's a very interesting dynamic for people to have to negotiate. Yeah. And I can imagine that it's incredibly difficult to bond over something that you feel is a fixed circumstance, right? Even though it might be temporary, you've had this incredible revelation where you've identified yourself with this community you've made friends on that forum and now to leave it behind is hard it's losing a bit of your identity right especially if you all coalesce around this one circumstance so I can see how that shift has happened from it being a temporary life circumstance to an identity characteristic especially when you're on the forums and when you are meeting people who are like hey I've had the same experiences. We are both this thing. We both believe in these ideas. It's really difficult. If you don't mind, I want to raise some criticism of research into incel communities that I've seen online from people at least purporting to be from the incel community. And that is that mm -hmm. they're not happy with what they see as a villain characterization of people within the incel communities, whereas they would consider themselves to be the, the victims. Mm -hmm. Do you have a viewpoint on where they are between those two? Well, I'm, I'm not even sure if they're opposite points on a scale. <laughs> I feel like they're not opposite points. I think everybody can both be a victim and perpetrate harm but in like small scale ways, most likely for, you know, the purposes of our conversation. I do take issue with how some of the literature has conceptualized the community. I think there's been an overwhelming focus on the terrorism aspect and the misogynistic community as representative of the whole incel community, rather than speaking to it and being like, this is a specific subset of a wider community and a wider world online. So I do take issue with that. And I, I do think that there is merit in community members themselves saying we do feel victimized. And I don't doubt that they do, particularly with the way that the conversations are going. We're seeing a lot more legislative responses. We're seeing calls for designations as terrorist threats. We're seeing a lot more scrutiny of members of the community, particularly on its biggest forum right now. So I can sympathize with that. But at the same time, I do think that there is an important distinction between feeling sorry for yourself and having those negative experiences, but then going on to threaten other people and to be harmful within online forums. And I understand where it's coming from. I completely 
can see the logic there. Well, these people are responsible for hurting me. So therefore I will hurt them back. But that doesn't, that doesn't fly. You can't just do that to people, even though they have hurt you. And I know it feels like a just solution. So I, I don't think that they are either victims or they're villains. I think there's a lot more gray area in between. Um, something that I've noticed within my own research is that there are a lot of men on these forums who have had really bad experiences with women. They've also had experiences of racial prejudice and racism. And those experiences all sort of coalesce into, well, I'm, I am angry and I don't know how to take my anger out on people. So I don't think it's helpful to see it in a very black and white way, especially because this is a subset of the wider community. It's not just misogynistic men who fall within involuntary celibacy and singlehood. There are so many other communities, both who identify as incels or who are like, we're not incels, but we talk about these struggles with singlehood, particularly in later life or with queer folks, trans folks, with women. There's so much back to the community that saying all incels are this thing is doing a disservice to the wider community as a whole. So like any group, it has a lunatic fringe, but they're being radicalized to do harmful actions. It's a, it's a minority group or a dispowered group that's at some stage taking it out on other un unempowered groups. Well, see... It's interesting. I've grappled with the concept of power in my own work, because if you look at some community members, particularly those who've been tied to the community who have then gone on to commit acts of mass violence, you look at them and you see straight men in society who wield a lot of power, but they don't feel powerful. And I think it does connect back to when we talk about the alt-right and particularly the rise of the working white middle-class man saying that he has privilege when he doesn't feel that he has privilege at all. So I think there's some really complex questions about power because to me, they do hold a lot of power. They hold power to harm through, you know, their words online, but to them, they feel powerless and they feel victimized. This is the issue with an empowered majority for people within that group, myself included. The instruments of power are more or less invisible, so you can't see mm -hmm. the power that you have. And and even if mm -hmm. you you don't wield it or you don't make use of it, it's still apparent to the people who are affected by it. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that raises an interesting point, and I'll I'll go back to my comments from the internet. And and one of those is that. That gender is very important in understanding the incel community. That that someone who is not a man would not be able to empathize and understand the experiences of trying to date and uh, as a man, and therefore that would somehow color the research in a way that's not genuine or, or reflective of the community. I've thought about that criticism within my own work. It's been levied at other scholars, and I do think that. There are concerns with the community about our ability to empathize with them, regardless of gender. But when you add gender onto it, I can see how they're sitting there and saying, well, I am a straight man. I'm trying to find women on dating apps. It's not working. They're judging me based on my appearance. How could you ever relate to that? And the truth is, I am never going to be able to relate to it 100%. But the best I can do is try. And I think that's the reason that I've been looking at narratives and how they 
discuss their experiences with the world, how they frame it in their minds and how they frame it to other people, because that is the only way that I will be able to understand. But I do get it in that there are a lot of researchers who are coming at it purely looking at the occurrence of hate speech, looking at the presence of specific terms, looking at connections to offline violence, without actually looking at the experiences of the people behind them, regardless of their experiences with dating. It could be experiences with family members, with abuse, with bullying, with racial prejudice and racism, with mental health challenges, with neurodiversity. There's a lot of underlying factors there that influence their experience of being an incel that isn't just related to gender. So I think in my approach, I tend to take more of an intersectional perspective when I look both at the community members themselves and how their words can create harm. So I tend to look at things beyond gender and look at how the wider experience as a whole, how they're telling their life story, then corresponds to how they view themselves and also how that view can then work to harm other people through their speech. I think part of the issue here is something that's not tied to this specific type of research. It's sort of a structural problem for people outside of research trying to interface any kind of research in that mm -hmm. research moves as a group and a body of knowledge. And every paper, every presentation of new research, all of that new research is just trying to add or subtract from that body of knowledge. And it's a conversation that's happening. You have to understand it as a whole to get an understanding as to where that fits in a context. So if you say this is only focusing on one group, the reason it's doing mm -hmm. that is because it's to fit into a larger conversation that may include all of the other groups. So people picking out little pieces of research and saying this research is overly focused on X or Y, mm -hmm. you have to understand that in the wider context. So it's, it's kind of hard for people outside of any research community to dive in because you basically have to read 20 or 30 papers and go to a couple of conferences before you can understand the context of any of those papers that you read. And if you're mm -hmm. outside of that and you don't have access to the papers because they're behind paywalls, et cetera, et cetera, it's very mm -hmm. hard to get an understanding of how that research is actually forming up as a, as a body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult, too, because a lot of our work stayed for a few studies. I know there's been some excellent work by Lisa Segura and Sarah Daly, who have done interviews with self-identified incels, and they fantastic work. I would recommend reading them if you haven't. But, you know, there is a lot of work that doesn't directly engage with community members themselves. And I think one reason, because we have excluded them for so long, they are going to be hesitant to talk to us, particularly, you know, we are women researchers looking into incels, but also a lot of our methods, and myself included, they are looking at online traces rather than speaking to them directly. So a limitation within my own work is that I don't know if the people that I'm citing are still active, if they still look at the world that way, if those are even reflective of their thoughts. And my, my counter is that those things are still important. They are part of the self in some way, and they do work to create harm, regardless of whether the person intended it or not. But I think the way that we've approached the community for so long is that we're always outsiders looking in, save for a few of us who have actually engaged with the community. And I think that does really limit the possibility of getting to know these people 
on a deeper level to go beyond our surface level interpretations. And again, paywalls, community members not having access to this content themselves. Although at the same time, I do know that when things come out, they do tend to post about it on their forums and they will critique it as you should with any academic research. You know, having the community members be so apart from our research does do a disservice, especially with how we conceptualize the community. At no point are we going to the community and being like, hey, do you agree with how you've been presented in this paper? Because we don't really see the need. I'm sensing a little bit of irony in this entire circumstance. And I am not a researcher and I know nothing about the communities that you're looking into, but I suspect this problem getting worse might have something to do with the algorithm-driven internet and sort of the the Instagramification of real life into this filtered version. So it's kind of interesting that you have this circle of a community that might have been somehow augmented by the disreality of the things on the internet and now mm-hmm. a group looking in to try and understand that community also being affected by the difference between the real world and what you might write on the internet and the varying levels of, of genuineness that you might report mm-hmm. your own your own self on the internet. There's kind of this this circle of separation from reality happening. Yeah. I think one of the weirdest things about lurking in incel forums is that I am so immersed in Chan culture and Reddit culture that like I will find myself laughing. Some of the jokes that I've read, they're funny. And I need to give them credit for that. But I know that because I am so online, like I'm terminally online, I get that humor. I understand where they're coming from. And I see that side of it. And I think depending on your social presence, depending on the circles that you're in, you're going to have a vastly different reaction to the content that I am finding funny. I told somebody about this and I was I was quoting a, a thread that I had seen. They sort of looked at me funny and they were like, that, you know, that seems a bit crude. And I was like, yeah, that does seem a bit crude to you, given that you are not present in the same Reddit communities that I am. You know, your your TikTok page probably isn't the same as mine. And I think a lot of the, the way that we interact online, both within our smaller social circles, but then as academics and what we look at is going to have an impact on how we look at online communities. We're all sort of living in our own filter bubbles, as are they. And our interpretations are going to be weirdly different across different studies, the same study with different people, just depends on how you exist online. But I think the algorithm and, you know, sort of the Instagramification of things and quick content really do play a role on how we look at the community and how we sort of conceptualize the content that's there. So where's your research at now? What am I looking forward to in terms of research coming out? I have a book chapter coming out in a Rutledge handbook in the next year or so that looks at my reflexivities based off of the past seven years of research, grappling with my own experience as always being on the outside as a queer woman and a researcher, and also never feeling that I'm able to approach the community. Hopefully that changes as I continue on, but at that point, that's sort of where I'm at hopefully a paper on how we can work our definition in better ways and more inclusive ways. And then right now with 
the actual PhD. I'm just in the middle of data collection. So I am doing a lot of netnographic observation and just getting my data ready for some conferences coming up in the later months of this year. Great. Well, thank you very much for spending some time. And I, I look forward to that paper when it definitely gets published. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. If you're involved in cyber, you're often expected to answer questions on everything from how Wi-Fi can be used to track people to the role of mutual legal assistance treaties in cybercrime investigations. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered an expert on cybersecurity and law. Professor Nicola Vermey is the director of the Public Law Research Centre and the associate director of the Cyber Justice Laboratory at the University of Montreal's Faculty of Law. He has some great insights on the intersection between technology and law, but more importantly, he's very patient and he's willing to answer my dumb questions, so let's take advantage of that and we'll ask him this. Where companies hold client data and data belonging to their customers, the general public, there are now more efforts to hold them responsible for a set of standards when it comes to security. But if they are victimized by a criminal who steals that data, how do we discuss who is the victim and whether that victim can have responsibility for being victimized? There are two different questions in there. The first one is where in the world you house your data and, and what are the consequences of that? And that in itself is a very complex situation. Basically, and this isn't a question of being afraid of criminals, it's the fact that you're afraid of other countries, right? There are two, two main sources for cybercrime, foreign states that are basically committed espionage, and then there are individuals maliciously or not coming into trying to gain access to your system. So... The reason that you want to, to keep your data in your country is because most countries have laws that state that data that are within their borders, that data is free to be accessed by that country's authorities if there's a suspicion of that data being used in a crime. Now, the most famous case of that is after 9-11 in the U.S., they adopted what is known as the Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act had one section that modified FISA. FISA is the foreign, I always forget the I, is it Investigation or Foreign Invest, uh, Investigation Surveillance Act of 1978. But I'm, I'm never sure what the I is. But it's an act that says you, that you can they can spy on their neighbors. And that's the whole point of FISA. And basically it modified FISA to say, any data that is housed in the U.S., if there's a suspicion that that data could be helpful in uh, stopping terrorism, then the FBI has free access to it. FBI or CIA, basically the, the federal authorities. And so obviously most governments in Canada and, and around the world said, well, that means we can't have our data in the U.S. because basically what that meant is so at the time, most Canadian banks, their data were in the, was in the U.S. So that would mean that if I am suspected of having a link with uh, terrorism, and now we're having this discussion, so clearly you and I have some sort of a link, well, that could be, depending on the judge, considered enough to grant the FBI access to your bank account. And since your bank, bank information is in the US, so they could go and see whoever is uh, hosting that data and gain access to it. And not only can they do that, but on top of it, according to the then Patriot Act, whoever's housing the data 
was not allowed to tell your bank and let alone you personally that they were giving access to the data uh, to the authorities. And so that created a lot of uh, fear around the world and then those types of dispositions. And obviously, I gave a very summarized version of it. It's a lot more complex than that. And of course, we're all pointing uh, at the Americans. But in fact, most countries have similar uh, ways of looking at things. And then on top of that, there were in 2017-18, there were a series of cases in the U.S. where information was on Microsoft servers or on Google servers or so on, but servers that were outside of the U.S. And so, again, the FBI, CIA, so on, tried to access the data. And in certain cases, the courts said you can't access the data because it's outside of the U.S. In other cases, it says you can access the data because the servers belong to an American company and therefore are free gained or considered to be on American land. So that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And a week before the Supreme Court was expected to hear the case, there was a new act that was adopted by the House and Senate, and that was the Cloud Act. Now, Cloud is actually an acronym. I don't remember exactly what it means. But it's basically the whole principle is if data is housed on servers that belong to an American corporation, whether or not those servers are in the U.S. is irrelevant. That is free gain. And that information has to be given to the authorities. Now, again, it's a lot more complicated than that. But the principle being so, for example, Amazon is an American corporation. Amazon does have servers in Canada. Technically, if the FBI told Amazon there's data on those servers that we want to have access to, then Amazon would have to comply. Uh, now, a lot of these companies have said they wouldn't comply. And then now it's a, a game of chicken to see, well, first of all, will they ever be asked to comply? Or have they been? We don't really know. We know what they're telling us. And it depends whether you believe that or not. And I'm sure not going to get into conspiracy theories here. But right now, we don't know if they will comply. We don't know if the American government will actually ask them to comply. And also, there's the possibility of uh, countries signing treaties with the US to basically be kept out of uh, that. But again, it's a lot more complex than I'm making it sound. So that's the, the first part of your question and a, a very long answer to that. I apologize. For the question of, well, the victims, so that was actually the topic of my, my PhD thesis. And if you are the victim of, a, of hacking or any type of cybercrime and you, you're losing customer data or customer data is being accessed, so you're a victim, but you're also being sued by a, a second degree victim, if you will. The whole criteria there becomes, well, did you take reasonable measures to protect the data? So one of the best examples of that um, was the TJ Maxx case, which happened, I want to say, well, the facts uh, happened in 2006, 2007. I think the case was actually in 2008. When I say case, it's actually a conclusion from the uh, Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Uh, so for, for your listeners that are maybe younger or never heard of the TJ Maxx case, TJ Maxx, of course, is a, a chain of stores in the US. They own Winners and HomeSense here in Canada. And back in the day, TJ Maxx, when you went to the store to return goods that you either didn't want or weren't the right size or whatnot, asked you for your driver's license in order to basically verify who you were. And that data was kept on the, in their system as well as your credit card and debit card data. And all of that was sent uh, somewhere to a data warehouse uh, using the uh, web protocol, right? Uh, wired equivalent protection. Of course, 
that happened during the period where somebody found a flaw in it and some people started exploiting that flaw. And that's exactly what happened in the case of TJ Maxx, where basically that flaw was exploited in a lot of their customers' data. So credit card information as well as driver's license information and then debit card information uh, fell into the wrong hands. So there was a complaint in front of the privacy commissioner here in Canada to see if they had kept proper security measures in place. And what the privacy commissioner uh, said basically is, well, you should have migrated to WPA, uh, which was the the follow-up to web. What I always find ironic is by the time that conclusion was published, WPA had been hacked and we were already using WPA too. So that's just to say that you can't just say, oh, well, the courts are now saying I need to use that. uh, And so that's what I'm going to use. But that's one example and I could give you others. But it's basically saying you have an obligation when you are keeping data on third parties to secure that data. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to have perfect security. It means that you have to have reasonable security. Now, what is reasonable security? We could spend the next five hours discussing it. It's a per case basis. But what it does mean is just because you were hacked and just because you lost customer data does not mean that you are automatically going to be found liable. If you can demonstrate that you invested in proper security measures and that you have a, a, a robust security policy in place and that you have security training for your employees and and so on and so forth. But that unfortunately you were unlucky. There was this security flaw that nobody knew about, but it wasn't because you were being negligent. Then even if your customers suffer millions in damages, you legally do not need to repair the damage. Now socially you might want to just to And now we're talking about basically keeping your reputation and keeping your customers. But as far as the law is concerned, you didn't do anything wrong. You did what was expected of you. And unfortunately, in this particular case, what was expected of you was insufficient. Big thanks again to Professor Vermeer and a thank you as well to Alyssa for that very informative chat. As always, there'll be links into the show notes for you to find out more about the research. In the meantime, though... This has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It is produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimeology on Twitter, or email me at cybercrimeology at gmail.com.